I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we laugh at Sean every time he introduces himself, and also <laughs> on which we are discussing Jane Austen's final novel, Persuasion. We are here to discuss volume two, chapters one through seven. Sean, do you have the edition that doesn't have the volumes? I have an edition that doesn't have the volumes. It makes a nod. It gives a nod to the volume breaks, but it keeps a running chapter title or chapter count from one all the way up to 20, whatever it is. Are you rereading to 19 today? Is that right? In that version? 17. 17. Okay. Okay. I did not even know, I'll be honest, that there were editions. I didn't either. It didn't have two volumes. <laughs> I never thought uh, about I'd never, it I had never uh, encountered one personally. That didn't. I mean, I'm sure I've encountered them, but it never read one that didn't have the the, the volume breaks. So yeah, I didn't think the, I should go do two schedules. No. And I think the people who are like me have figured it out. <laughs> Creativity and little, you know, uh, context clues went, went yeah. away. Yeah, that's yeah. right. By the third episode here, we've got it pretty much figured out. <laughs> well, we are going to discuss as a volume two, one through seven today, then uh, next week, we're going to read to the end, I believe, of the volume. Is that right? Yeah. Um, oh, speaking well, the of end of the book, I guess. Yeah, the end that's, of the yeah, book. That's, that's the end of the book. Yeah. Are we Are we planning to, should we plan to talk about, read and talk about the canceled chapters? Does yours have the canceled chapters? The original ending and then the, <sighs> the amended ending that Austin wrote? I do um, not know the answer to that. Yeah, it it does at the back. Yeah, the canceled chapter. I didn't even know about a canceled chapter. I would say scholar I am. (laughs) I would say no, we won't talk about that, but we can bring it up in the Q&A. Okay, great. So I would say that for the sake of, I mean, because they got added by her brother or her nephew or something, right? Yeah, but she wrote them all. Well, I know, but people, you know, also (laughs) write entire books that they don't publish. No, it's true. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure we're talking about the same book. It's fine. Yeah. Um, is it, it's an, it's a chapter in the middle though, right? No, it's the final two chapters. She, she, uh, wrote one ending and then replaced it. Oh, well, that's the one that she replaced. Exciting. I'll look forward to that. The one that she replaced is the one that's in the book currently, right? Yeah. The that's one that right. she replaced it with. So, I mean, I think we should take it as it comes, but then, yeah, maybe in the Q and A at this time, we could talk about how it could have ended. Yeah, well, so at the great. end of the at the end of the chapter, it says, "Then follows chapter eleven, i.e., chapter twelve in the published book, and at the end is written." So it's like it comes. It's not the, it's supposed to be the very, very end. I don't think. I think it's supposed to be like right before the end of. I think it's supposed to be the penultimate chapter. Wow. Mine ha- there. Are, well, yeah, sort of. I guess so. There are. Mine has two chapters that in there that did not appear in the updated edition of the novel, but appears okay, so in this the one only has one. I feel like we are not really doing ourselves justice right now. And we can, <laughs> uh, we can do some research and figure this out and keep going. <laughs> yep. That's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll address it on the, I mean, we can address it, I guess next week if we want to, but I don't know, read it or don't we'll figure it. We'll, we'll see where conversation takes us. Logan, take all and of this we, out. Nah, don't bother. <laughs> um, okay. So we're here to discuss, uh, 
chapters one through seven of volume two. Heidi, do you want to do a quick summary of what happens in this one? I didn't ask you to do that ahead of time. Do you think you can cover the basics? Yes, but I do like to know because I'm not great at summarizing. Um, Sean, would you like to do it? (laughs) No, I want to hear what Heidi has to say. Uh What she's going to come up with? Yeah. She needs practice summarizing. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So Anne goes back to Upper Cross and many conversations ensue while she's there. And they're all wondering how <laughs> Louisa is doing uh, back in Lyme. And Anne is meanwhile convinced that Captain Wentworth had been paying serious attention to Louisa and must be very heartbroken and is keeping away because he is trying to help her to recover without the excitement of his presence. Uh, And then she has to go to Bath, which she doesn't like and she's not excited about. uh, But Lady Russell brings her with her to Bath and Lady Russell likes it there. uh, And Anne does not. She doesn't like being in town. And she has the displeasure of being with her father and her older sister who are vain and silly and embarrass her by pursuing social acquaintances uh, rather than interesting people. Uh, They do however, renew the acquaintance of Mr. Elliot, who is the heir of Kellynch Hall and of the Elliot fortune. And he ingratiates himself to all of them, including Anne. Lady Russell becomes convinced that he is pursuing Anne with the intent of marrying her. Uh, And Anne likes him, but not quite enough. And she has some reservations, but she's not sure exactly where they're coming from. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the reading today, they uh, the, Captain Wentworth shows up in Bath and everybody is, um, or Anne, excuse me, is embarrassed and a flutter and doesn't know what is going to come of that. And that's where we're ending. So, one character that I don't think that you mentioned there oh, is Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith. And I want to, I want to talk about her briefly because this is kind of the middle of the book. It's a crucial section. Um, Louisa, Louisa's uh, on the mend and in a way kind of forgotten about, even though she's talked about it constantly, but the book kind of leaves her behind. Um, why does Mrs. Smith appear when she does and why does she get as much screen time, so to speak, as she does? Do you think? Um, do you mean like in from Anne's perspective, from within the story, or do you mean like why would giant Jane Austen have written it like this? What's the difference? Well, because there's a plot reason. I guess. I guess I'm asking: Are you asking about Austen's writing? the craftsmanship of the novel, why bring this character in right now? Or are you asking kind of like from within the novel, why is Anne paying attention to her? Why is Anne? Do you want the plot answer or the artistic craft answer? Yes. I don't understand. I don't, I actually genuinely don't know what the difference is. (laughs) Why do you think Austin's? Yeah. What's the the plot plot answer is, that she has heard that this old friend has fallen on hard times and is in the same town as her. And she's a good person, so she's going to spend time with her and cheer her up. But the artistic craft answer is bigger. It's not a plot. <laughs> okay, fair That's enough. It's just something that okay. happens. 
You mean that's a big well, difference between plot and something that happens. I guess that's <laughs> true, but uh, the, like we're not treating her. Do you think she's just a big MacGuffin? Like, well, maybe that's what I'm asking. She's just inserted to make stuff happen, or is she, or is she inserted to to mean something? Oh, that's what I'm. I, I, I'm, I'm a little mystified at the response to my question. <laughs> well, okay, Heidi, what do you like? What is okay? What is Austin's purpose with this character? I mean, I think, as Sean said, maybe to show Anne's true colors versus to create an even bigger contrast to give Anne something actually good to do instead of just telling us she's good to show us that she's good and that she cares about good company and permanent relationship far more than she cares about the glitter and the glitz of being of seeing and being seen in Bath. Um, It also gives her a, a place to go when she doesn't want to attend um, without being rude and just staying home by yourself. Uh, And so, yeah, like there's, um, there's some purposes, I think, from, as Sean said, an artistic crafts point of view to bring in a character like this, as well as maybe highlighting some of the class differences um, and, and, and showing us that there is a dark underbelly to all of the high class drawing room kind of set that we're seeing that there's people who are actually bearing the weight of that on the bottom. And Austin is drawing attention to that by giving us some characters to sympathize with. John, what, what are you going to say? <laughs> Maybe nothing. <laughs> oh, I, was, I thought you looked like you had something on the tip of your tongue. No, I, you know, I was just thinking, uh, thinking through what Heidi was saying. Yeah, I I think that's great. Uh, yeah, she's even. We're told at one point explicitly that she has an inborn natural virtue, uh, which yeah serves to contrast really neatly and and conveniently with the all of the other characters in Bath who are born to rank, uh, but lack nobility. And so one of the first things that Anne reflects on when she's reunited with her parents or with her with her uh, father and her sister since the beginning of, for me, it's chapter 15, but it's describing, that's the chapter that starts out describing the, the lodgings in Camden Place. Sir Walter had taken a very good house in Camden Place. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Anne thinks, or the narrator tells us that Anne is struck by how happy her father and sister can be. She might not wonder, but she must sigh that her father should feel no degradation in his change. And not just because the rooms are smaller, but she goes on to say, should see nothing to regret in the duties and dignity of the resident landowner. Should find so much to be vain in of the littleness of a town. And, uh, and Anne has talked about, these things before, right? When Anne's family was leaving Kellynch the first time, Anne mentioned that it was her who, or the narrator mentioned that it was Anne who went around visiting all of the poor uh, peasants, <laughs> you know, the the common people in the district, uh, saying the family's farewells. And Anne is now sad that her father is not sorry to have lost the the duty of noble obligation, uh, caring for the souls of, of people that are 
born into his care, basically. Uh, so there's this nobility that comes with birth to the noble ranks, and these people don't have it. But Miss Mrs. Smith is uh, has an inborn virtue of her own, even though she's destitute. And she ends up being a person who uh, there's no motive for the other superficial characters to deceive her or please her. And she, she ends up learning and seeing things uh, about the true character of some of these bath folks uh, that they are crafty enough or tactful enough not to reveal to people like Anne even. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's right. And it gives us even a little glimpse also into Anne's backstory, because many of us might read this book and say, how did Anne become so good um, when the people around her, when her family, the, at least the family that we've seen, were told that that Lady Elliot was a, a woman of sense and virtue, but we never meet her. So we just meet these silly kind of snobbish characters. Even Lady Russell, we see her limitations for sure in this section uh, and the separation, the intentional separation that, uh, that, that Anne makes with her while maintaining that bond of affection. Um, and so we see there is somebody from Anne's past who has instilled uh, some virtue and given her a model to imitate. And it speaks even better to Anne's character that that person is of a lower social rank when she's surrounded by so many snobs. Yeah. Do you, as I've been reading it this time, I've been kind of interested in, well, okay, let me put it this way. Austin has, like this, this book is known for Anne being virtuous uh but i find that there's a lot of times when she makes she goes out of her way to like maybe show ways that Anne is less of less than a model do you say so do you think of her as kind of being like like are we i'm not even talking about like in terms of reliability of point of view but are we supposed to take the things that she does the choices that she makes as like inherently good like does the book view the decisions that she's making as virtuous her perspective as virtuous i don't mean and again i'm not talking about what we talked about earlier where sometimes you could debate the reliability of whether she's not that the book is trying to trick us about the facts but you could sometimes debate whether she is accurately interpreting a moment but aside from that are we supposed to are we supposed to interpret and experience the things she does as inherently virtuous throughout Okay, I'm so glad that you're asking this question because I've been thinking about this same thing. And when when I say, and I know, Sean, you've, you've said something similar, that she's, I, I've specifically said she's an ideal type. Um, and the closest that we get to an ideal type in the Austin canon. Um, yeah. And uh, also that she is virtuous and used all those adjectives to her. But that doesn't mean yeah. that we don't see her on a journey. In fact, the entire novel is based on the fact that she made the wrong decision in the past, that she should have stood up for herself, that she was persuaded to do something against her better judgment and her heart's own desires and uh, and was persuaded by Lady Russell, whose limitations that we see in the novel and so we are certainly meant to see uh, Anne as on a journey and as becoming something, a movement, a trajectory, a character trajectory from an 
from ignorance to knowledge, uh, from something lacking to a completion, right? And for her, that is standing up for her own self, uh, for advocating for, uh, for true judgment, um, and for her own desire, she is already a dutiful person. She's in, in a sense, like a, a different, a very, I don't want to say opposite, but, um, because that makes one or the other sound negative, but Emma's, Emma's journey of becoming is, is similar in the sense that Emma is a good person and could be, and is humble enough to learn and grow. And she's moving from being kind of more of this, like stuck up desiring, foolish, not foolish, but there's something lacking in Emma that is gained by the end. She becomes more dutiful. She becomes more sober-minded. She has greater sense of judgment by the end of her novel. With Anne, uh, she, first of all, she's older. That, that's something we've already said. Um, and so she has some learned wisdom over the years uh, and so she is on a trajectory of growth. She is better at the end of the novel than she is at the beginning. And all of these circumstances, whether they're taking place in her interiority or out in the external world, are contributing to that becoming. But along the way, she's humble enough to 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 submit to it. And that sets her apart from some of the other characters who remain silly uh, and who remain foolish and, and you know, somebody like Mary who's better natured than Elizabeth, but still remains pretty statically foolish. But Anne leans into the opportunity to become wiser. Makes you wonder yeah, if Jane really Austen just figured that every family had one Sober-minded uh, <laughs> daughter, and then everybody else was just foolish. <laughs> like yeah, that, was child, that the yeah. pattern that she just based on all child. all the different sets <laughs> of characters? <laughs> there are some yeah. patterns in Austin for sure. Right? Yeah, this is true. Yeah, and she. It, it, I think Heidi, that's that's right because it's not to claim that someone is virtuous is not to claim that they are perfect or perfected, and part of becoming virtuous is to become blessed and to be like a God. And that's a process that can't be completed in this life. Uh, but the virtues, the attaining the virtues are also, uh, is also for the purpose of uh, living better and loving your neighbor better and loving God better. And that is something that you can increase in, or it's something that is applicational day in and day out. So the novel is called persuasion and, uh, even though Anne is virtuous in ways that other Austin heroines are not, she still has to deal with other people. <laughs> and and one of the primary ways she ends up having to deal with other people and use her virtue to navigate is telling truth from falsehood right? and discerning real value versus uh, fake or uh, faux value uh, in people and in things. Uh, so there's this still the remaining challenge of uh, applying virtue, uh, discerning virtuously uh, the the acts and deeds and intents of people inwardly and outwardly. Do you um, do you find yourself? I don't know. I don't know exactly how to say it. Just judging her, or like looking, being like, why'd you why'd you do that, or why are you thinking about things that way, or whatever? No. I find her, uh, even her foibles, even the things that she misses uh, to be either very understandable or even a bit to her credit in the sense that mm. if she can't 
tell what Mr. Elliot's ulterior motive is. She knows that there's something not right. Right. And she acts on that. And um, even if that action is internal, right. Um, And we're seeing some in this, even in this section that she's, she's already made a claim. I'm not going to marry this guy. Right. Um, She knows there's something not right. She can't put her finger on it. But she's relying on that, which already shows this movement towards discernment. Yep. Everybody is trying to persuade. Well, not everybody. Lady Russell, who she trusts and who she's already made the wrong decision and been too easily persuaded by Lady Russell uh, in the past. In this case, she's like, mm, you're not going to convince me. There's something not right. And I'm going to rely on that. Right. And that uh, we we feel I think all readers can feel through the writing that that she's right about that. Like, I think as I've been reading this section, I keep thinking, wow, Austin is as everybody's like, she is as good as everybody says that she is as an, as an author, because she's doing something I think really hard to do here, which is uh, give us a feeling or a sense of something without coming out and right. And and saying it. Um, and do you mean like, us, like an energy or a vibe as opposed yeah. to a like, like we just know Anne's right. Right. Like all, all the words <laughs> on the page say that Mr. Elliot is this great guy. He's handsome. He's, uh, he's agreeable. Everybody likes him. Right. But we still get this like, Oh, something don't know what it is, but, but, but as people, the three of us know what's going to happen, you're also catching these glimpses along, like the, she's throwing out these threads, right? Along the way that by the time the shoe finally drops, we're like, oh yeah, of course, right? Um, so, which I'm sorry if that's a giant spoiler to people, like that is well, Jane uh, Austen's way, five, right? She yeah. comes right out and says that he like is suspicious of him. The yeah. book is yeah. suspicious. Like there's a whole three paragraph section where it's like, He's weird though. Right. Well, and another thing that's to her credit is that she's not confident because she still has this, which we want her to be more confident, right? You want to be like, yeah. the guy likes you, like pay attention. Um, Shut your stuff, Anne. Right? Like you have more power than you think you do, girl, right? Like all us moderns you, are like, do you think that he in, actually, but, <laughs> do you think Elliot actually is attracted to her? Um, oh, is it too soon? Is it too soon? Yeah. It- <laughs> that might be too soon to say. And, I mean, and yeah. also we already know. And so because it's, because it's Austin, I don't know. It's, she's but just so good. I'm going to go on record as saying, yes, I think that he is actually attracted to her. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that later. Once yeah. the, uh, the, yeah. the buckled shoe drops. Um, anyway, I, some of her, I just have one more thing to say. I know I've talked to oh, yeah. some of her lack of discernment is because of her true humility. And that is to mm-hmm. her credit. Yeah. There's no guile Period. in her. Yeah. Period. So she's not cynical. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I, I have a question about something that I think I too have in, in many ways sort of been assuming, but the more we read the, the less I'm assuming it. And Heidi, you've brought it up a couple of times already today. Uh, and it has to do with moral luck, uh, and this idea that Anne has in fact made the wrong choice in her initial, uh, refusal of Wentworth and initially being persuaded by Lady Russell. Can, are we sure? Are we, are we meant to actually conclude 
that she made the wrong choice. I mean, it was a, it was a painful choice. It was a choice that ended up not having been necessary, but that's why I, that's why I bring up moral luck. Like, was it just, you made the the right call and then it had unfortunate or unforeseeable outcomes uh, or yeah. Did she really make the wrong choice? I think she made the wrong choice, but I could be, I like this question a lot. What's well, the there's alternative? Three way- Cause she's going to come back at the end of the novel and reassess explicitly that choice. Right. True. And, and it's a fascinating answer that she, or reassessment that she gives. So I think it's worth talking about before then. Right. Well, there's diff- three different ways you can look at it. One is the book's going to explicitly tell us through a passage somewhere like Lady Russell tricked Anne and Anne <laughs> regretted the decision that she made, something like that. Or it's going to uh, imply it by suggesting that Anne ha- is unhappy and Wentworth c- could have made her happy. But no, that's what or, I mean. Or, 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 that's what I mean. The outcome the outcome doesn't necessarily confirm the right, the rectitude or wrongitude. <laughs> yeah. But the book is going to give us a book is choice. going to, the book is going to turn to something like that and then make a judgment on it. Yeah. It's but going we, to assess. We've that been kind reading for a long time. We're most of the way through the book and mm-hmm. it hasn't done that for us. So we should be operating. Are we operating under the assumption? Has the book invited us to operate under the assumption that that was the wrong choice. It's a good, I think well, it's a good th- question because I mean, if we look at, if we, if we have this mindset of like all things work together for good, right. Does that mean that the end result means that everything had to be the way that it was. Right. And that's a philosophical question, a question about fate and free will that ties, you know, right. That, the way we answer that question might have more to do with what we believe about some of these bigger questions about what it means to yeah, be but, human. But yeah. a novelist has the luxury of being able to come in and fix everything, no matter how badly their characters have messed up. And then at the end of the novel, we go, oh, well, that's how the novel had to go, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. That's true. But but the book but a book will condition you to think a certain way. Right. So like it doesn't matter your point of view coming into it or the author's like the self is going to condition you and it's usually going to condition yeah. you true via the characters. So like the the big one here would be has the book conditioned us to believe that Lady Russell is either virtuous or trustworthy? Because if the if we have come to this point in the book and the book has told us that Lady Russell is not virtuous or trustworthy, then that can lead us to make some kind of judgment about other characters around her, including Anne, I might add, but also yeah. the, the advice that she's giving. And I think that but, to this point in the book, Lady Lady Russell's character is a huge question mark. Yeah. Well, we've only recently gotten some development on that front where she has shown we meet her in person and get to hear her talk and converse and pass judgment on things. Uh, and she seems prudent. Uh, she doesn't want to... Uh, embrace Mr. Elliot too soon. Uh, mm-hmm. She yeah. she doesn't want to pass judgment. She doesn't want to dismiss Captain Benwick too soon. That, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe he is just another silly sailor, but I I have to meet him before I decide. Right, uh, mm-hmm. So that makes her seem prudent. But then we do also see her in Bath 
a little more taken up with the society of Bath and the foibles of Bath than Anne would like her to be. Well, she uh, straight up urges Anne to marry Mr. Elliot. Oh, yeah. She gives her that advice. Right. Which she doesn't have, which all Anne has is some kind of intuition and a fact that Mr. Elliot is saying what, essentially that one paragraph, I can't remember what page it's on, but she says, the problem with him is that he says what everybody wants to hear. And doesn't feel strongly, like he's, he's never, yeah. he's too polished. There's, yeah. The mask is too, or it's, his face is too perfect. It's got to be a mask. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. and how, I guess you could say, well, how could Lady Russell know that? But then, so I, I think we're given enough clues that she is not as prudent. She's more status obsessed, um, that she, her reasons for things tend to be based on social issues versus true discernment. I think we know enough about her to say that. Yeah. And and that she has, I guess maybe she has seemed more discerning to Anne because Anne has always seen her against the backdrop of her own family. Right. Who's far more vain and more shallow and less discerning. Well, and Lady Russell's a woman of her time. Like there's, uh, we we as moderns more easily see the flaws in somebody like Lady Russell than someone in her own time would have. Sure. Yeah. Um, and and she's frankly being, like you said, prudent and marrying for security and in order to keep or maintain an inheritance is not something that Jane Austen condemns in her right. novels. Uh, there's It's something she questions, that she comments on, that she looks at very closely, but she doesn't straight up condemn it ever, not even for somebody like Charlotte Lucas, right? So there's that's one of the ambiguities of this society that we yeah. we moderns don't see it in the same light. I've even seen some of the comments on the Facebook page about like the snobbery that's inherent in Jane Austen. And, and I think that those comments are valid, realizing that we are able to see it from an outside perspective. But Austen was herself embedded within this culture, felt these pressures, and was a spinster who had yeah. rejected a man who, who had rejected a man who she didn't like, who was much like Mr. Collins. And as you said, there's a lot of bad biographical uh, uh, interpretation of Jane Austen's works. And so I don't want to get sucked into that, but she had, sure, but... she lived in this life. Yeah. 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 And also that the, we're seeing, and she's sending up some of the negative side of an honor based culture that is not a bad thing. Uh, Anne Elliot has a sense of noblesse oblige uh, and the duty and obligation to care for like, the, the unfortunate uh, because she's born into the noble class. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there is something to uh, a deference for social towards social order uh, in the abstract that is not uh, inherently wicked or snobbish. Right. Uh, but but it's uh, it's corruption, you know, is a, is a great evil and is pretty ugly. Unrelated a little bit. 
maybe a little bit far afield it might seem, but what do you make of the the title of this book, given the fact that she did not choose to title it this? Right. So she was going to call it the the Elliot. <laughs> the Elliot. Like, yeah. yeah. Her, 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 brother her brother named. Yeah. Her brother chose the name Persuasion after. Which shows it's a literary family. <laughs> and I read that there's no evidence that she, you know, some people thought, well, maybe she just told them to, but there's no evidence in letters written, or, yeah, yeah that yeah. she suggested Persuasion to him. So we've been talking a lot about like the title of the book has come up a few times and that this is a book about, well, persuasion and so forth. Um, her, ti- her titles are rarely uh, not on the nose, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like in a fun way. Uh, I don't mean that as a criticism, like the name Pride and Prejudice is wonderful. But yeah, it's a little thematically it's about on the nose. Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> right. 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 Um, the, the trick, of course, is it's a bit of a trick in some ways because it defies your expectations at the beginning of the book. But yeah, that's right. How do you how do you think about like, what does that what does that mean to you? Like, do you think we talked about this is a book about that teaches you how to read, and it's a book about the idea of persuasion and convincing people and being convinced and all that kind of stuff? But did do you think that she actually like w- intended that? I mean, how can we know this? So you, you mentioned that there's a lot of bad biographical stuff out there. We can't know that for sure. Um, but I, I'm just curious how how you guys approach that, Sean. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's probably the case that the, the the title was not given by her brother with everything in mind, even that we have that we could find and pull out uh, in terms of the the fittingness of the title. Uh, right? Uh, there's there's a kind of happy happy luck that happens there. He may not have thought through all of the different. Uh, uh, senses in which persuasion is going on and on all these different levels. Uh, and yet it's there because Austin wrote a, uh, you know, a complex and brilliant polysemous novel. But the Austins were actually indeed a literary family and not that they were all, uh, people who enjoyed literary accomplishment, but Jane Austen in particular shared her literary gift with her family and it was a, it was an enjoyed treasure of the family. And from an early age, she was writing stories and plays for her family. Uh, and uh, there were plenty of family letters between her sister and her brothers uh, where members or characters in her novels are <laughs> mentioned, uh, you know, with familiarity as if they <laughs> live in the common imagination of the family. So I think it's yeah. also easy to see that or to think of, uh, her literary projects as sort of being uh, a common possession of her family in a way that would make her brother feel perfectly confident and capable of assigning a, a adequate title to the novel and get it right. There's been a lot of writing about how this is people, people sort of take this as her most autobiographical book. Even the fact that her brother like Benwick and Wentworth, uh, may was became a captain, was a naval officer who became a captain, made his career through. The, yeah, one of them know, died as an admiral, I think. Yeah, and like, and then the character of uh, is it? It's the one that is married to Benwick that 
no, no, that, that is married to uh, Musgrave uh, and, and travels the sea. Or, no, Mary's married to Musgrave, who is a Croft. Croft. Okay, yeah. The Crofts, Crofts, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. The Crofts, yeah. She's the one that would go, in the book, she travels across to the Bahamas or wherever it is to go see her husband. Right. And her sister, or no, her sister-in-law, Fanny Austin, I believe it was, actually did that. Yeah. And then there's some other there's some other elements to it that that are considered fairly autobiographical. So I, that's that's interesting. Do you think that that, that is Heidi purely the fact that she's getting older now? Um she's doing more reflecting or or do you do you do you find that a little like pedantic a little bit? Eh, I don't I don't care about the 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 bi- autobiographical elements of of this book. I, I it doesn't interest me any more than it would be if it was. No, I think it's really fascinating. I love the fact that, that, um, that Jane Austen is writing what she knows and who she knows. And I think it's what makes her excel at the psychology and give her such man, like precision of wit and insight and depth of thematic exploration, like nuance. And I like, I really like reading about her life and wondering about the overlaps in the characters and in her own experiences. Um, I do the same thing with like Dostoevsky a lot. Like, why is it that Smerdyakov in um, has epilepsy and you know, like these, and and so does Dostoevsky. Like, I think that's really interesting to think about. Um, I don't think it's the right way to interpret her work. I don't think it's the only way to interpret her work. Like, I don't. I think it's yeah. bad biographical criticism when you start to say the only way I can understand this book is if I assume that uh, our author had some kind of personal experience with this, and I'm going to like search through her life to find, try to figure out what that is. Like the book, a book and an author talk to each other and overlap each other, but they're two separate and individual entities in the world. And it's really important to remember that. Um, But I really like to know about that, about her. And it actually just makes me feel like I like her and I'd like to be her friend. She seems (laughs) cool as a person. Have you guys read um, Virginia Woolf on Jane Austen? Yeah. This has been referenced before. Yeah. In she there's an essay from 1925, and in it she at, at the end of it she talks about persuasion. Uh, do you remember her description of persuasion? Uh, I find it no, kind of it's it's wolfy, one of the few things hilarious she, in a Wolfian way. It's one of the few works that she praises, though, right? Yeah, but it's a little backhanded. Yeah, well, she sure. she says um, she well she says the balance of her gifts was singularly perfect. Among her finished novels, there are no failures, and among her many chapters, few that sink markedly below the level of the others. But then it talks about how she um, she died and died young and uh, left a lot unfinished, basically, that what could she have accomplished? And then Aust- uh, Wolf writes, let us take Persuasion, the last completed novel, and look by its light at the books she might have written had she lived. And then she says, there is a peculiar beauty and a peculiar dullness in persuasion. (laughs) The dullness is that which so often marks the transition stage between two different periods. The writer is a little bored. She's grown too familiar with the ways of her world. She no longer notes them freshly. 
there is an asperity in her comedy, which, which suggests that she has almost ceased to be amused by the vanities of a Sir Walter or the snobbery of a Miss Elliot. The satire is harsh and the comedy crude. She is no longer so freshly aware of the amusements of daily life. Her mind is not altogether on her object. But while we feel that Jane Austen has done this before and done it better, we also feel that she is trying to do something which she has, which she has never yet attempted. There is a new element in persuasion, the quality perhaps that made Dr. Uh, Hewell fire up and insist that it was the most beautiful of her works. She's beginning to discover that the world is larger, more mysterious, and more romantic than she had supposed. We feel it to be true of herself when she says of Anne, she had been forced into prudence in her youth, learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. Uh, she goes on, uh, it's a long paragraph, um, which I uh, quite like, uh, and it's classic wolf, but I'm curious what you, what you guys think of that take there. Do you just reject the dullness aspect of it out of hand? Heidi, what she's trying to say there? I don't reject it out of hand. I think that there, there is less satire and more, um, embarrassment in this novel. Like Anne is, because she is wiser, because she's older, because she's growing and everybody else is staying the same, right? I'm saying that in a Matthew McConaughey voice, um, that, that, um, that it's, I, I feel in this novel, a sense of the shame of being surrounded by people like that, that I don't feel as much in the other novels. For example, with Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, Every time Mrs. Bennett is uh, is on stage, so to speak, it's embarrassing, but you're but hilarious. In yeah. this novel, Sir Walter is not funny as he's not as funny. He's just embarrassing, and and you feel that because Anne is, uh, she's not laughing at him. She's just keenly feeling the. Uh, the losses of her life. Right. And so because, is that Anne because has, the book, Oh, go ahead. Well, is that, do you, is, so is that because there's a difference between Anne Elliot and Elizabeth Bennett or because the book is looking at those two characters in different ways? I think I agree with Virginia Woolf that it's the book itself and the narrative itself. Yeah. However, what I don't agree with is the assumption that Wolf seems to be making that that's an accidental failure on like an accident mm -hmm. or a failure on Austin's part, because I wonder if it's entirely intentional and, and I, there's no way for us to know for sure, but Wolf seems to be making the assumption that, that Austin failed or didn't do it on purpose. And I'm not convinced of that. Yeah. The, the circumstances of the plot are, might also be described as duller in that, there's less at stake in almost every area of the novel, right? Like there's an entailment here. And then less at stake, less at stake than what? Less at stake than in, the, in some of her other novels. Right? So oh, I in, see. Okay. in Pride and Prejudice, the estate is entailed and everybody's going to be destitute and it's the end of the world. Something's mm -hmm. got to be done here. Yeah. The estate is entailed and yeah, you know what? I guess we're all going to be okay one way or the other. Uh, or, you know, people making bad marriages could end in, uh, you know, the ruin of, of young women. And here a bad marriage is just going to be an embarrassment to the family. Uh, and a couple of people are going to talk about it in their parlors. Uh, so 
maybe there's a, yeah. a dullness there too. There's just, uh, it's more, even the circumstances are more mundane. Yeah. And then she doesn't really give us so little happens in dialogue compared yeah. to the other books that yeah. I think it really changes the tone because you're not able, you're not really getting the chance to interpret um, scenes. Like this book doesn't really have scenes. Yeah. It has, most of it happens off screen, so to speak, off page. And then you've got Anne kind of reflecting on it or the book is kind of giving us a summary. In some ways, yeah. I really, I really wonder, and I don't mean this as a criticism. I, I really wonder if this is a book that she was going to write more of. Sure. Like yeah. it reads at times to me as she got to a scene, Sketched summarized it. it sketched yeah. it, summarized it from the perspective of Anne and wrote in the margins to herself, go back and write the dialogue for the scene later. Yeah. I and wonder. then if she doesn't do that. And so it create, and, and so then it creates a diff, completely different effect. I'm right. that's a, that's pure conjecture, but sure. like, I'm not even, and I'm not making a, it's not, I'm not making a judgment about the book from that. Uh, I just find that I find the, the difference in the approach really fascinating. For example, with, um, Elliot, he goes like, a hundred pages without saying anything, actually saying anything. Yeah. And the moment when he actually gets to say something, I, I know like it's, it's kind of, well, she actually let him talk like on the screen. (laughs) Um, And I wonder if that's part of why making a screen adaptation of this book is actually kind of hard because so much of it is happening outside of it's like happening elsewhere. And then the characters doing the interpretation for you. Whereas you read pride and prejudice and it's like you're watching a play and then you're yeah. interpreting between the lines yourself and you're alongside Lizzie. And so here, Anne is doing so much of that work for you. And I don't, again, I don't mean this as a criticism of the novel. It's a different approach. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, it perhaps it, it changes the, the, uh, the energy of the book and the, your experience with it. I think maybe and that's maybe- where Virginia Woolf is calling it dull or whatever. I think she's using that's classic Virginia Wolf. There's less very or, fun to read, by the way. So <laughs> come on. No, oh, I, oh, oh man, I love her. Wolf, I love her right. criticism. No, she's, her, yeah, her not, nonfiction her, is fun to read. Yeah. yeah. Not her fiction. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, I see. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, she, <laughs> this is almost not a manner of novel or a manner of what am I trying to say? A novel of manners. Uh, this this book almost can't be called a novel of manners because you don't you don't have these set pieces where people are in a room on their best behavior with one another and then you and they have to kind of read between between the lines and interpret everybody's good behavior and figure out what's really behind it and what it, what it all really means uh, or somebody comes in and ruins it by yeah. not being on their best behavior yeah exactly or comedy or or tragedy to the moment <laughs> yeah you get you get descriptions of how the how the engagements went uh what happened at the dinner party rather than getting to see the dinner party and yeah so it is it is different did you want to say uh, say something there Heidi? no i think that's true <clears throat> because it is a novel about the interiority of Anne. yeah that that's it it's interesting to me you know so i have a couple of friends who absolutely love this book this is their favorite of the austin books and then for some people, it's 
like I've got some friends who are like, I can't read that book. Cannot read. That. It's like because they have a different expectation. Perhaps that I'm, they've never told me that they never said I have a different expectation for Jane Austen, and therefore I don't like persuasion. <laughs> but I think some people do have a different expectation for Jane Austen, and this is so different that it, that they just it's they're not saying it's bad. They're just saying as far as the Jane Austen canon, it's like what's your least favorite Shakespeare play, <laughs> or your least favorite of the six best Shakespeare plays? It's, you're not it's still better than most things. Yeah, uh, but I find it I find it kind of to be a bit of a um, a reflection of the reader themselves. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily know that that means that most, that other times people who love this book love books of interiority and, or prefer other authors, books of interiority. And so I've kind of been thinking about what this book does to people. It's well, just, I find I it. I think kind one of, of the reasons why I can answer that personally for me without speaking for anybody else. So many novels of interiority yeah, are about good. very, um, like unpleasant people that we're supposed to like because mm. we're in their heads. Right. <laughs> and that's like a modern thing is like, I'll write this book about like someone who makes terrible decisions in their lives. And then I, well, Virginia Woolf does this. <laughs> and, um, they they write about like foolish or wicked people from their interiority in order to elicit sympathy and understanding. Um, and and that isn't that's not a terrible thing to do. But the reason I love this book is because it's about the interiority of somebody who is virtuous and who who is who is on, who is determined to grow and to meet the suffering and the losses uh, and the disappointments of her life with fortitude and without demanding attention for it. And I love that. And I think that's pretty rare when you're reading an, an either a stream of consciousness novel or a novel that explores the inner life of somebody from their own perspective. It's very rare that that is about somebody like Anne. And I just love that. I'm willing to do the other thing, like, <laughs> um, but I, I like really, I find this very refreshing to be inside the head of a, of, of a, of a good person. Um, we probably should move towards wrapping this up. Do you want to add anything to that, Sean? No, that's great. Are there any other passages or moments in the section that particularly stand out to you that are worth looking at before we move on to the rest of the book? Last few minutes of the episode here. We talked a little, we haven't talked a little bit about Mrs. Smith. We talked a little bit about Elliot. We've talked a little bit about Mrs. Russell. Anything else that needs to get touched on i mean she has now by the end of this section she's now beginning to wonder about the possibility of wentworth again because it turns out wentworth isn't going to marry what's her face right i think yeah. that's the thing i wanted to say is that there's a um there's a shift at the very end of this section that that lets us know that there is um does this section, I'm sorry, I read ahead a bit. And so I'm about to <laughs> maybe wrap myself out here. Does, oh is it is And in this section, does she have a conversation went, with Wentworth about Louisa and Captain Benwick or no? Is that the next? No. Okay. So that no. was, okay. So that's, that's coming, coming up. up and I'm going to comment on that next week. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but we do get that. Uh, I don't know, maybe we were predicting it at this point, but this kind of surprise upsetting of expectations when uh, it's revealed that uh, Wentworth and Louisa are not going to end up together. And there, I think there are a lot of, I think Austin gets us to anticipate certain things that are then taken away or don't pan out. We, we had mentioned, I think in our first episode that there's, uh, there's some sort of fairy tale tropes. Uh, and I think some people have been, we're discussing this on, on the webpage too. There are some fairy tale tropes going on at the beginning of this uh, novel, but uh, then we have Lady Russell uh, as the one who takes up those fairy tale tropes again and tries to impress upon Anne how nice it would be if she could sort of occupy the place of her dead mother uh, by marrying by marrying Elliot here. She would get her castle. She would get her title. Uh, there's something really nice and full circle uh ish full circle-esque about that kind of conclusion to the story that seems like it would be ideal uh but we already have hints that that's not going to be the way things pan out uh then a several apparent suitors (laughs) are introduced uh for Anne, and they're kind of in one fell swoop in the space of just a few pages uh we get revealed that Anne actually intends to never marry Mr. Elliot, no matter what he does. And then one page later, it turns out that uh, Mr. or Captain Benwick, uh, who seemed you know happy to uh, dial up the uh, the old Anne hotline, uh, is also <laughs> uh, otherwise engaged. Yeah, that's right. So I think that that is one of the things that also sets this novel apart from Austin's other novels, where she previews or she gets us to expect or desire an outcome in the other novels that seems impossible. And then slowly uh, takes us through the, the crazy winding journey of that outcome becoming possible. But here uh, she's doing something else over and over again. Um, one of the things that I'd like to do this year is have a question of the week that we'll post underneath uh, the the episode on Substack, and then people can have a we can in the comments on the episode over on Substack, people can, can converse about that. Um, if you if there was one question that either came out of this conversation today, or you feel like is open in the book, what would you like to hear hear slash see people discuss and and maybe either in, give their input on or guide us towards a conclusion. I want to end each episode by discussing what we think the question of the week should be briefly. Sometimes we'll, there will be some very dramatic question that we talked about the whole episode and all we really got to do is put that question in. Sometimes, the, sometimes there won't be. I'm, I'm just curious what you guys would think would you'd like to see discussed. Heidi, what do you think? I, I really like Sean's question of did Anne, are we sure that Anne did the wrong thing by turning Wentworth down the first time? I think that's a really intriguing question. Was she too persuadable or was that an, a, was, 
should she have done that? I like that. I like that question. And that, that when you said that, Sean, that has sparked um, further thought in me. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of ways people could take that because you could look yeah. at that. Like some people will take, some people can't avoid thinking about that. Like, well, she did. So if she didn't, the whole book would be different. And that's, it's not that kind of question. <laughs> um, it does seem in a way like that's one of the big questions of the book. Like the book is, I think that's right. She has, she has made that choice and that bed is there. <laughs> so now what does it mean to sleep in it? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you could, you could say, what are the ramifications? You could say, well, you know, it was as a parental figure, it was prudent to counsel her against this risky marriage. And it could have gone any number of ways uh, had they married. But on the, on the flip side, you could say, well, if she had married Wentworth, maybe he would not have been so uh, bold and eager to risk his own safety uh, in the daring actions that won him his position and his wealth. Mm -hmm. And maybe he would not have been as successful as a married man in the Navy. So as then he is was. the question whether whether uh, Lady Russell was correct in her assessment of him and pushing I, Jane to move or in Jane's choice to listen to Lady I think, Russell? I think the interesting question is, yeah, I think the interesting question is in the 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 prudence or morality of of Lady Russell's counsel objectively and Anne's refusal objectively uh because uh lady russell doesn't seem to have had maybe i'm forgetting or omitting it doesn't seem to be so much a character problem as mm -hmm. a no it's right situational problem yeah yes. situation yeah yeah and i think the only way to the the only to me the only interest the way that the only way that question remains interesting is if we can if we approach it from within their particular social world, right? Because right. to yeah. us as moderns, that's an easy question. Lady Russell yeah. is a snob and <laughs> how dare she separate two people who love each other, right? Yeah. But within their social construct, it's more nuanced and complicated than that. And that's what makes the question interesting. Guys, we've yeah. all watched enough Merchant Ivory and Downton Abbey to, <laughs> to, to know the yourself. question. <laughs> okay. So you have it. You've watched lots of Merchant Ivory, and we know it. Um, um, oh, oh, then the question is: Should Jane? Should Anne? Sorry. Should Anne have all those years before turned down Wentworth? Is that how we want to say it? Was she wrong? Should Anne have turned down Wentworth? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Was that's a good. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and it's not the same question as. Did turning down Wentworth have negative consequences? Right. right. But was she wrong to do it? Mm -hmm. Consequences be mm -hmm. damned. In parentheses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, then head over to the Substack page if you're not already there listening there. Uh, you can also do this in the app uh, and um, give us your feedback on that. Uh, Substack does have an have on that when you're using the mobile app, either on Android or on iOS, they do have a chat feature, which is pretty cool. And so we may start trying to do some things with that. But well, for now, we'll just put this uh, on the uh, in the description underneath the, this episode so anybody can go and 
jump on there and, and give us their, their feedback on this question. Um, I know there's a lot of people who aren't on Facebook that want to be a part of the conversation. So hopefully this is a way that they can, you know, we can get more conversation, uh, for people that are not, you know, uh, pawns in the Zuckerberg empire. I mean, That's on right. Facebook, us are on Facebook, you know, uh, all right. Any final thoughts? No. I, oh, I do have one final thought actually. Chapter eight is one of my favorite chapters in all of Jane Austen. I just think that the pacing of it, or the next one, the the structure of it, um, is just like practically perfect in every way. I love it. <laughs> it's like a pleasure to read. Um, it's kind of stressful, but that's the point. And she builds this incredible tension in this. Just pay attention to it. I think is my my like urge. This book honestly has yeah. been. It's been building to some more stressful scenes. Like the book yeah. is ready is ready for some and she stress. Just <laughs> nails it in this chapter. <laughs> Sean, final thoughts? Nope. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as I said, we will discuss the rest of the book uh next week and then we'll do the q a so we'll have the thread for that over on substack as well but head over there and join the conversation on this particular uh question of the week um don't forget that we have our bonus episodes over on substack as well close to reads hq uh about till we have faces we're going to be getting ready to record the q a for that here soon and then we're going to dig into the ransom trilogy the space trilogy however whatever you want to call it we're going to dig into out of the silent planet by c.s lewis uh soon Lots of other great content over there as well, including various articles and columns that we're all writing, reviews that are coming up, other bookish content. Got lots for you this year in 2023 that we're excited about. So um, I guess that's it. I guess that brings us to the end of another episode. So for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.